Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. You'll remember if you've been with us that Luke, uh, while he was not present for many of the things that he's writing about, he doesn't actually start including himself into his own writings until his second book, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, He set out, as he says in the first chapter of Luke, to write an orderly account of these things. And so probably a lot of firsthand testimony, uh, interviews with people who were there. And uh, as I was studying this, I was just struck with how many personal details there are about um, Mary um, and and some of these things that aren't captured by other gospel writers who were there, who were present for Jesus' public ministry. But because Luke um, perhaps maybe interviewed Mary, a lot of this stuff might come from Mary herself. Like you can imagine, as we're reading this, um, Luke sitting down with Mary and being like, okay, give me the scoop. You raised the son of God. What was that like? Like, I mean, obviously he was like the king of kings, but he was also like just a, a baby. Like, was there anything that stood out? Like, any funny memories? And so we'll get a little bit of those this morning. It'll be really good. But um, Yes, if you are there, um, in Luke chapter 2, beginning in um, verse 21, and we'll stay seated because I'm going to read a bunch of scripture today, and we're going to get through a lot, but um, verse 21 of chapter 2, it says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens uh, a womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So just a couple verses and we're going to pause. It's easy to forget um, just how significant so much of what God wrote into the everyday rhythms of life was. So um, when we read this, it can be easy to just be like, you know, birth, dedication, they named him, right? Like, let's get on to the meat of it. But I think we should pause here because this stuff is dripping with significance. So just in a couple of verses, we've got some really important stuff. So the first thing is that Jesus was, he was circumcised. I'm not going to go into, you know, the anatomy of all that means, but Jesus instituted, sorry, God instituted this for his people Um, the Israelites, to set them apart. Really, this was, hey, here's how you're going to be identified as my people. You'll be circumcised. This has been, since there was a God's people, there has been circumcision. So Jesus comes, he's born as a person, as a human, but he also identifies as one of God's people. Second thing in here that I think is interesting is that, uh, you know, they name him Jesus, which isn't a surprise to any of us. That's what we know him as. Um, But it was according to the instruction of Gabriel. Well, Gabriel, this angel, when he came to Mary and said, you are going to give birth to a son. You shall name him Jesus. Uh, Jesus is kind of the Greek pronunciation of the name Joshua. And Joshua was this person in the Old Testament who had a really significant um, contribution to the people of God. He actually was the one who brought them um, into the promised land. So Moses was pivotal, um, used by God to deliver them out of Egypt, but it was Joshua who actually brought them from Um, the wilderness into the promised land. And his name means God is salvation or Yahweh saves. So by naming this baby Jesus, we're getting a picture that this baby, like God still saves. And and by naming him Joshua, Jesus, the Greek translation of Joshua, we're, we're getting this idea that he will be a deliverer of a people to a new promised land. Again, dripping with significance. He was circumcised. He was named um, Jesus. And then lastly, this, this dedication. Um, it says that according to the law of the Lord, every firstborn will be dedicated. And, and actually in Exodus 13, 14, let me turn there really quick. Um, God explains why he wants people to do that. So when um, God brought um, his people miraculously out of Egypt, 
um, he, um, he cursed the Egyptians with this plague um, that every firstborn would die unless they turned to God. And so God spared every firstborn son. And so um, he asked um, Moses to pass this along. In Exodus 13, chapter four, or, sorry, verse 14, um, it says, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of slavery from the house of Egypt. So Again, just a couple verses, and I know I'm like nerding out going into like a lot of these specific things, but I wouldn't want us to rush past this because um, Luke includes this for our benefit, that just in a couple short verses, we got um, he, Jesus, is identified with God's people. He's named Yahweh saves after someone who God brought about a new promised land, and he was dedicated um, to the Lord so that he would remember that God brings people out of slavery. That's who this baby is that we're reading about. So when they brought um, Jesus to the temple to be dedicated um, in chapter 2, um, there are a couple interesting people that he, they meet. And so turn with me again to Luke chapter 2, picking up in verse uh, 25. It says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought this child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your, your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, um, first of all, this character, Simeon, let me just say, I don't know what is on your bucket list, um, but this guy just had one thing. He said, now your servant may depart in peace, for my eyes have beheld the salvation of Israel. For Simeon, uh, he had been promised, and we don't know what this would look like, you know, but he had been promised that he would see the salvation of Israel. And when I hear that phrase, we, we see it, hindsight, as twenty twenty that the salvation of Israel was, Jesus died on a cross, but and we can imagine that he would imagine something too, you know? So Simeon being there like, okay, God told me that I'm going to see the salvation of Israel. And we can imagine him just like imagining and daydreaming about this. Man, it's going to be great. These Romans, they're oppressive. I hate being on these people. We know that this land is rightfully God's, that God will one day rule in the line of David. And you can imagine him building up what this Savior that he would get to see before death would be. And he gets brought into the temple and he sees a one-month-old baby. And God gives him the, the insight to know, this is it. This is my salvation. And rather than being, like, let down, he's like, now I can die in peace. Now, I mean, Abby, my wife and I, I think we make pretty cute kids, but I've never heard anyone say this upon meeting any of our kids. You know, Milo Raymond, now I may die in peace. You know, I've beheld him. But this is, this is just amazing that Simeon, um, there was nothing that he cherished more than this. 
But he also said that Jesus would be assigned to be opposed. So up to this point, um, pretty much everything that we've heard about Jesus was, um, was glorious. It was amazing. I mean, the, the angel who appeared to the shepherds said, Behold, good news of great joy. A Savior has been born. And that word great there, I just had to share this because I think it's so funny. I learned this in the last month or so. That that word great, good news of great joy, is mega. I feel like that was a total miss on the translator's part to not make it good news of mega joy. I mean, this angel was announcing this baby will bring about good news of mega joy. So who wouldn't want this baby? What, who would be opposed to him? And Simeon actually goes on um, to, to kind of indicate that, and, and Mary does this too, that the people who would be opposed to Jesus would be those who desire glory and power apart from God. That Jesus, yes, he would come and he would be a great king in the line of David. He would be the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. But he's going to be delivering people in a different way from a different enemy than people had expected. And, and people don't like this. I mean, people didn't like this at the time of Jesus' birth. In fact, King Herod, the, uh, the king who was um, reigning over the Jews at this time, um, so felt threatened by Jesus' birth that he actually announced that every baby under two in the region that Jesus was born was to be killed. He was so threatened by God reigning in his place. Later on, Jesus would be crucified at the hand of political and religious leaders because they felt threatened by his political and his um, religious power that he would have over them. And so um, we might sit here and say, you know, who would be opposed to this baby? But I feel like in so many ways, um, all of us are opposed to him in ways where we don't want his power, his salvation, the thing that he brings. So um, we know that Jesus has come and he has defeated our worst enemy, Satan. He has truly taken the throne that was promised to his ancestor, David. But he did that by dying. He invites us into a similar kind of sacrifice. It might involve physical death, but for sure it involves dying to preferences. We are to be a people who say, not my will, but yours. Lord, whatever you ask of me, I will do. We see this in Simeon. He, he had devoted his life to waiting for the consolation of Israel. We are to set aside comfort to make room for those who need comfort. We are to set aside money for those who are in need, time for those who are in need, and ultimately we are to set aside the right to rule our own lives so that Jesus may be king. It's the death of what could be if only we got to live for ourselves. This is the thought that reveals our heart. So Simeon said, um, he will be assigned, will be opposed, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And it's this question of will Jesus have authority in our lives that is the basis for people opposing him or not. But in light of who God is and what he's done, it should be our greatest delight to serve God in this way right? So, yes, Simeon says people will oppose him, but we, we should stand with the angels and say, this is joyful. Why, why would we oppose this good king who has come? He's died in our place, and we should serve him out of delight, just like Simeon. We don't get this sense that Simeon was standing there, and he was like, oh, you know, Lord, this was a letdown. This is the salvation that you showed me? Or, like, God, you took so long. This was just, I'm, I'm questioning whether this was worth it or not. Like, he praises God. It was his delight, based on who he knew God was, 
and what he had done to wait expectantly, joyfully on him. And we're invited into that same sort of thing. We meet one other person at the dedication of Jesus um, in chapter 2. Pick up with me in verse 36. It says, And there is a prophetess, Anna, of the daughter, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. <clears throat> like Simeon, Anna is someone who, the cost of serving God, of giving up her very life, it seems more like a joy than a duty. S Simeon wasn't sitting around there dutifully waiting, like, all right, Lord, you know, here's another day gone by that I'm going to wait for you to show me your salvation. He was like, another day, this could be the day. And we get that same sensation from Anna. Anna, so it's, it's ambiguous here whether she was a widow until she was 84 or whether she became a widow and then was a widow for 84 years. The, it's, it's not quite clear, but either way, upwards of six decades um, of widowhood. And how many of us, if our, the rest of our life was, you know, kind of swept clean in our mid-20s, would be like, this is how I want to spend the rest of my days in fasting and prayer to God. This wasn't something that she was doing out of a duty. She, um, she could have um, went on to reinvent herself or, or do any number of things with the rest of her days, but what did she do? She devoted the rest of her life to fasting and prayer. Does that seem like a life that is meaningful to you? Would it seem, I'm in my mid-20s. If the idea of, you know, quitting my job, going and spending the rest of my day fasting and praying, waiting for the redemption of Israel, to Anna, this was so much more than a duty. This was a delight that she partook in. And it, I'm reminded of like um, this idea of like uh, when I ask my parents to babysit my kids. They, I mean, they have to clear whatever else they were going to do. But they're not like, you know, I mean, I'll do it, but I mean, we will have to clear all of the rest of our schedule so we can do this. It, it's, it's a sacrifice in one sense, but it's, it's a joyful sacrifice. Yeah, we'll drop everything. It reminds me of another story in Mark 14 where... Uh, Jesus is with his disciples and a woman comes in and she um, breaks this flask of very expensive fragrance and pours it out on Jesus. And his disciples like scoff and they're like, this is such a waste. And Jesus says, she's done a very good thing to me. That this idea of a life spent in devotion and delight, waiting expectantly on God, does that seem wasteful to you? Like Anna's life might. Uh, it shouldn't. It's easy for us um, to kind of define success, especially in the context that we live, of like financial, like success being mostly like financially like up and to the right. You know, like for, for us, if we were to say like, yes, now, now you can take your servant in peace. You know, I've accumulated my wealth, my house, got a great kids, all those things. But for Simeon, for Anna, that was not even on their radar. Delighting in God, waiting on him was all that they... Um, that they needed to live fulfilled lives. So moving on, this next story is gold. It's actually, again, like the only time that we have um, of anything of Jesus from before his public ministry is when he was 12. And so, again, I can imagine Luke sitting down with Mary and like asking her these questions to get this kind of information. She's like, oh yeah, there was this one time 
when Jesus was 12. So annually, Mary and Joseph, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is um, the um, actual, the incident that God used to bring about um, salvation from the Egyptians. And so annually, they were invited to remember what God did saving them from the Egyptians. And so annually, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to do this. And we don't know whether it was a particularly, you know, emotional or spiritual time um, with them, but we do know that while they were on their way home from Jerusalem, about a day's into the way into the journey, Mary looks at Joseph and she's like, do you have Jesus? He's like, you're kidding, right? I do this joke. Like, Abby, you have, you have Wesley, right? You're kidding, right? No. And Joseph looks back and he's like, no, like, I don't have him. And they realize they have left Jesus, or at least he's not with them. And so a day's journey home, and then a day's journey back. They're two days in now. It's still no Jesus. And then the text says that they look for three days before they find Jesus. Um, the, one of the commentators that I read on this passage uh, said this. I thought it was so funny. Uh, they're probably quietly blaming each other. Joseph thinks, what kind of mother loses the Son of God? Who does that? If there's one rule, it's make sure the Savior is in the caravan. Mary thinks to herself, look at him looking at me. I know he blames me, but he's the man. He's supposed to take care of the family. It's his son. How could he leave his son in the city? I can't do everything. I packed the tent. I made breakfast. I fixed us some lunch. The least he could do was keep eye on the boy. I would tell you what I think Abby would say to me if this happened to me, but it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say in a church building. I mean, like, they lost their son for five days, the savior of the world. And they find Jesus in the temple, and it says that he is answering questions, asking questions, and everyone there is marveling at him. Reminder, he's 12, um, and Mary goes to him, and she says, son, how could you do this to us? Don't you know how anxiously we've been searching? He says, why have you been searching? And he says this, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? We see in Jesus this clarity. We see that he Um, knows that he is the son of the father. He's not anxiously, you know, like, oh my gosh, I miss my parents so much. He's like, why wouldn't you expect anything different from me? Like, don't you know how much delight I have in God? Jesus isn't dutifully being like, you know, the Lord has made me the son of God, born as Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously, it's my duty that I stay in my father's house. It's like, no, I almost get the sense that, like, Mary had to, like, drag him by his ear to get him out of there. Like, this is what Jesus wanted to do. It was his delight to serve in this way, to ask questions. Now, one truth that we proclaim as Christians is that there's only one Jesus. And so reading this story, um, we could walk out of here just with our tail between our legs um, because, you know, like— I mean, I remember what it was like being 12. Um, I was not dedicated to anything like this unless it was, like, not good for me. Um, and, you know, I'm now in my mid-20s. I could say the same thing. I still don't have this kind of devotion of, you know, abandoning everything else for five days to, you know, be with God, asking questions. That's something that I still do not do. Um, but Jesus, he said uh, in another place, um, that he, he, he must, well, rather, he says here, I must be about my father's business. And it reminds me of, like, how I, I personally, Tristan, must eat to stay alive. But you'll never hear me complaining about that. Like, none of you will ever hear me complaining about my need to eat to stay alive. And for Jesus, at one point, he's with his disciples, and they say, Jesus, like, we should get some food. And he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. And Jesus, he, 
He delights so badly in fulfilling this role that God has set before him. And so the wrong application for us today would be to, um, you know, it's New Year's coming up. Um, so the wrong application would be like, next year I'm going to be more, more devout and righteous like Simeon. You know, just pray that I would have a vision like Simeon had. And, um, or, you know, like the, the wrong thing would be like, you, you should, I, I should quit my career and go, you know, devote the rest of my life to fasting and praying like Anna, or even if you're 12 in the room, I see some of you. Um, the wrong application of this message would be like, I'm going to go on a five-day spiritual pilgrimage and not tell my parents. Like, don't do that. That's not the right application of this message. Uh, but the right application is to delight the one who in every way delights in God and in serving us. Jesus he, he grew up in, you know, for the rest of Luke, we'll, we'll pick that up back, I think, in February, and we'll go through the first half of Luke. Um, he, he loves people so well. Yes, he has been invited into a royal task, the thing that God has appointed for Jesus to do, no one else can do. And in that sense, it is a duty. He does say, I, I must do this. He uses this language of compulsion, like the Spirit compels me to go do these things. But we never once get the sense that he does it and, and doesn't delight in it. Um, I, in studying this, God brought to mind um, the, this passage in Ephesians 3. So um, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the uh, church in Ephesus, and he prays that they would be strengthened to be able to comprehend just how much God loves them, the height and depth, width and breadth of God's love for them in Christ. God loves us, y'all. His delight is to love us, to serve us, to die for us. How do we respond then to a message like this? We delight in him, even imperfectly. We make it our aim to delight in the things of God. Throughout this text, um, it's repeated a couple of times that Mary treasured these things in her heart. And I love that idea. Like, do you, do you treasure God in your heart? Do you treasure Jesus in your heart? That is something that any of us can do. We know what the Father's business was to Jesus. For Jesus, that looked like um, being um, socially outcast, um, it meant not having a home. It meant not accumulating great wealth. It meant being betrayed by some of those closest to him and ultimately dying on a cross and raising from that cross um, from the grave to sit forever at the right hand of the Father. That's what the Father's business was for Jesus. But for us, our business, um, as it relates to the Father, is to delightfully wait. Like Anna, like Simeon, uh, we, we wait for the redemption of Israel. So we just celebrated Christmas yesterday. Um, and in so many, so like the Advent season is officially done. But in so many ways, we are in this new Advent season, this new season of waiting. Um, yes, Jesus has come. He has conquered the enemy. Um, sin and death have no more power over us. And yet we live in this time between the times where um, we know what is spiritually true of us, but physically we're living in a world that is still reeking of some of these things. When I think of Revelation 21, which is um, the, the vision that God gives um, the Apostle John at the end of all things, the end of all of this, our hope isn't that Jesus came once, but that he's coming again. He makes his dwelling place with us, and there will be no more death, no more tears, no more pain, no more illness. Even just this week, uh, one of my closest friends lost his dad over Christmas. Yesterday, I FaceTimed one of my closest friends who was away from his family on deployment in the Air Force. Like, we know in so many ways that things are not as they should be. 
our hope in Christmas isn't just that Jesus came, but that he's coming again. And in this way, we're in a new advent where we're waiting for the redemption of all things. Jesus even is waiting for us. So one thing that I think is cool, and this is as we kind of wrap up, I feel like a really easy way that we can apply this right now is to take communion. But on the night that Jesus died, he was with his um, disciples. And uh, he was eating a meal with them, one last meal with them, and he, he took some bread and he, like, he said, this is, this is my life that I give you, and um, this is provision for you. The, this is, he, Jesus referred to himself as um, the resurrection and the life. He's giving us that when we um, believe in him, and he invites us to remember that, remember his life that he gives us through the bread. But he also gives us his blood, which covers our sins. It makes it possible for us to approach boldly the throne of grace because he uh, no longer regards us according to our sins any longer. That's what we're remembering. But then as he holds that cup that symbolizes his blood, he said, I will not drink this wine again until you're with me in my kingdom. And Jesus right now is waiting for us joyfully. He is excited. He cannot wait. And I, I've been thinking about this this Christmas season of like what God was thinking about the days leading up to Christmas. Like, in the things that I was thinking about leading up to Christmas, like, got to make sure everything's perfect, got to tie the bow on all these little things, and, like, Jesus came, and it was amazing, and I can imagine God doing the same sort of preparation right now, um, just so excited to unveil this new kingdom, this new life that Revelation 21 speaks of. Jesus is waiting to celebrate with us now, but he invites us to partake in communion while we're waiting. Um, so, if you got one of these, um, I find these challenging to open, so there's grace for you if that's also if that's also you, if you struggle to get them open. Just to remind us of what what we're delighting in when we delight in God. We're delighting that God gave us Jesus, who his body was broken for us. Jesus laid down his life. He was the king of kings, the ruler over all the universe, and he came as a baby. He grew up, he lived um, a, a challenging life where he was ultimately killed for us, and he gives us his body to remember the good gift that he paid for us. So if you have that, take and eat. He likewise took some wine. Um, we've got grape juice here, <clears throat> kid-friendly. And he said, this is my blood um, given for you. And we know that his blood pays for our sins so that this is the thing that puts us in right relationship with God. We can thank God and delight in him as we remember that he no longer regards us according to, his, according to our sins in light of his forgiveness for us. So that's what we're remembering when we take this cup. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you. <clears throat> thank you so much. Um, not only that you, that you came, um, and you came as a baby that you've given us life, but that you're coming again. God, we thank you. You've given us very um, tangible reminders, ways that we can be mindful of the gift that you've given. Um, Lord, we know that um, in light of who you are and what you've done, um, our first 
response should be worship and delight. Lord, we can read these stories and we could be um, weighed down by the guilt of how we aren't measuring up to the delight that um, some of those who have gone before us um, have shown. But I pray that um, for us here that we would um, that we would endeavor to delight in you, that we would uh, not just settle for mere duty, um, not just dutifully attending church, not just dutifully getting in your word, being with your people, but delightfully, Lord, that you would be sweet to our hearts. That's what we pray, Lord. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.